Hello, story seekers. I'm Nico. I'm Ben, and you're listening to The Tiny Bookcase. Our guest for this episode is a fellow podcaster who co-hosts the podcasts Dark Natter and Hosts in the Shell. Great names. He also writes dark fiction, crime thrillers, and cyberpunk. We would like to warmly welcome John Richter. Hello, John. Hello, hello. Thanks for having me. No problem. Well, we've actually, we've had both of the hosts of the Hosts in the Shell podcast now on. That's right. I'm just shamelessly ripping off my co-host, basically. So yeah, <laughs> Matt Adcock, who featured on your show recently, um, he spoke very highly of his experience, said he had a great time. I hadn't heard the show until then, um, you know, quite a few weeks ago. Thought, oh, I must check this out, listen to Matt's appearance. Did so, thought it was ace, listened to a few more episodes, and then thought, I, I might write to them and ask if they'll have me on as well. And uh, mm. thank you, you did. So uh, here yeah, I am. Just, we were more than happy to. And he didn't mention the hot knitting needles under the foreskin thing. That's interesting. That is interesting. <laughs> yeah, tell you all about that later. Off air. No. Uh, yes. Of course, that was uh, that was the peacock episode, which yes, um, Nico and I have a bit of sort of a behind the scenes joke about that week because we were both really ill, and Nico was was worse than I. We both had a sort of um, a flu of some sort, so our oh. stories were really odd that week, and Nico's is particularly weird. Um, so if anyone's listening and hasn't listened to that episode yet go back and listen to it but that's not what we're here to talk about we're here to talk about john um so dark fiction how would you define the dark fiction that you write that's a that is a great question and points to the sort of existential writing crisis in which i pretty much permanently operate so i <laughs> oh, i'm um, so sorry no no it's good it's straight to the heart of the matter i i uh, so some of my books are crime thrillers some of them okay. are sci-fi cyberpunk thrillers that are sort of crime thrillers as well tend i tend to like a murder mystery detective story oh very good uh, and then some of my books are full-blown short horror fiction collections so I, I, so basically i write all the stuff that i like so that's what i that stuff is what i read um and the problem is it doesn't all sit on one shelf in the bookshop no. So if you're a writer of those different genres, how do you group them together? So the, the label I've settled on is dark fiction, which I think works and describes it reasonably well and sounds cool. The problem is it isn't a shelf in a bookshop, so yeah. people don't necessarily consider themselves fans of that as a genre. So sometimes Yet. it can be quite hard. Exactly. That's the hope. Um, Go with your today. own sign. The <laughs> <laughs> whole setup, just like... Put in a shelf, put up a little sign that says dark fiction. I'll just go and rearrange Barnes and Noble. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, fantastic. Well, I'm looking forward to it. The uh, the main event has to begin at some point, though, chaps. It does. Our regular listeners know how it goes, but for those of you joining us for the first time, there will be three stories told in this episode, and all of them have been written to the same shared prompt. This week, the prompt is The Triangle. And Ben... You're the first of the three points. The triangle. How does it feel to fly? If your luck turns, you may find out someday soon. Luck! The way you view our society sickens me. I may have profited from it, but you have destroyed it. Can either of us say who the real monster is here? Felipe winced 
as pain punctuated his tirade, lancing up his ruined legs. The morphine is subsiding again, it seems. Joaquin smiled. I hope it is agonising. Try your luck and discover for yourself. I will only ask you once more, and if I do not like your answer, you will go up again. Where is Camilla? Dead. One of your foreign bombs killed her. Take him up! Joaquin spoke the last in English, and Felipe watched his two American flunkies advance on him. They were dressed in dark fatigues, over which tan body armour was strapped to their torsos. From the straps and belts they wore hung a panoply of tactical equipment. The men were walking armories and never showed any emotion. Felipe could see where the patch, which would have borne the stars and stripes, had been pulled from their tactical vests. There wasn't anything he could do to stop the men as they dragged him from the interrogation chair and outside. The sun was unobstructed by clouds and noon high. Felipe had lost all sense of the dates, but at least he thought he knew it was the middle of whatever day it happened to be. The sheet-covered bodies had been arranged into neat lines across the palace's courtyard. They had been his colleagues, friends and family. The soldiers of the junta, who had done the bloody work, were lounging in the snippets of shade nearby. Many of them lit cigarettes to celebrate his pain as he was moved past them. The Americans dragged him towards an administrative building, which had once been stuffed with analysts, clerks and accountants. In Felipe's time as vice president, he had not looked at the place with anything more than a glance. Now it was a slow gallows for him, and he found himself taking in every crack in the windows, every mortar gap between the old bricks. It would be his third time entering the building since the junta had seized the capital. Felipe's bruised feet snagged on where a small crater from a fragmentation grenade had scorched and rucked up the paving bricks just outside the entrance. It forcibly stretched his legs out for a moment, and he made himself swallow the scream. It would not do to give the soldiers anything else to mock him for after he was dead. The walls of the building's internal stairway had been painted white during a previous administration, but the bright splashes of blood from the coup were stark against the faded bone of that old paint. He felt every step rattle his broken body as the two hulking soldiers dragged him upwards. One, two, and three, thought Felipe. Three floors up this time. The room was strewn with papers and computer parts. The loyalists had managed to shred some of the documents, and they had gutted all of the computers of their hard drives as the building was being taken. The room's large window was open, and Felipe wondered if any of them had jumped or if their blood now stained the stairwell. We have checked all the bodies. She was not there. Where did you put my wife? Joaquin asked him as the two soldiers propped him up against the windowsill. She's gone. Felipe could not bring himself to look out of the window, so instead he stared down at the faded carpet. You have lost! All you can do now is spare yourself some pain! Joaquin spoke earnestly, and the tone made Felipe chuckle. The shaking pulled on his bruised ribs and quickly silenced his mirth. I wonder, continued Joaquin, did you laugh when your cabinet culls drove my father to suicide? He jumped from this roof. 
I want you to think about that fact. That one day, I will throw what's left of you from the very spot he used. Joaquin nodded to the soldiers, and they levered Felipe out of the window and let him spill from their hands. The vertigo of the world spinning around him was dizzying, and Felipe tried to close his eyes but found he could not look away from the ground which was rushing to meet him. Somehow, he managed not to scream this time, yet he found that three floors was just the right height to have time to absorb what was happening. Instinctively, he stuck out a hand to cushion his fall. The arm snapped and was crushed under him on impact. The rest of the force went through his ribs, shattering them. His pelvis, already broken, flattened underneath him as he rolled over, shaking from the pain of it. He could feel the summer air on the shards of bones which had torn through his skin. Felipe had no awareness he had lost consciousness, until his eyes were opened again. The sweating and scared face of a military doctor swam in and out of focus, so he closed his eyes to try and understand what was happening. He couldn't feel anything, but he could hear the grunt of the doctor as he tugged at Felipe's ruined flesh and tried to stop the internal bleeding. Time seemed to have slowed for Felipe, locked as he was in a seemingly endless series of operations. Eventually, he felt the rush of a stimulant jolt his awareness back to Joaquin's reality. He opened his eyes again to see that he'd been propped back up in the interrogation chair. The hulking Americans stared at him balefully. Joaquin was carelessly holding his pistol and studying Felipe's face. Just tell me where she is. She is nothing to you. And it will all stop. One day, croaked Felipe, this tide of blood you have made will turn back on you and everyone close to you will drown. I will not put her there. She is free of you. She is free of me. Free of... Anger pulsed across Joaquin's face, and he lunged to grip Felipe by the chin, putting the muzzle of his pistol under it. It poked Felipe so that he was forced to tilt his head back and look up at Joaquin's manic eyes. Did you fuck my wife? I loved her. Felipe didn't hear the gun go off. The bullet simply snuffed out what little there was left of him inside his pain-filled mind. Ooh. Great stuff. That was delightfully grim. Mm. I, uh, I wrote down, unfolding like reverse origami. That's what it felt like. Like something incredibly elegant was being deconstructed right because he's in the middle of a situation that's been going yeah, on it's, it's yeah like we were so deep in that as each little fold came undone like you know there was about like how are they hurting him how have they been hurting him and then as they were going as soon as you said you know they were going to the third floor this time i thought no they're gonna chuck him out the window aren't they yeah and that that sense of dread and you know you know that moment when it's so much worse to be proved right you did that very, very well. I'm glad. There was um, there were some great descriptions of of not, this was not its only good quality, but there was some, certainly some good kind of injury detail. I sort of underlined the summer air on shards of bone. You know, you could almost I sort of made an involuntary kind of noise to myself mm. when you were when you covered that bit. Yeah, it's it's an odd one, that isn't it? Because it's almost like would would warm air really be worse than cold air? I don't know, oh. but I think it's just like. 
you know, you can, that, there's that smell to warm air, especially when you're on when you're on holiday somewhere nice and hot, like if you're on the south of Spain or wherever. Yeah. And there's that like there's that like scorched quality to the air, which is very sort of nice. Uh, sort of that's what I was trying to evoke in that one. That uh, you got that that the idea of the heat across really well. Actually, I wrote down the phrase snippets of shade. That's a lovely mm. little turn of phrase. Mm. Well, I think yeah. it, you know, it literally evokes the idea of an, of like a photograph almost or a, a film. Yes. Yeah. I, I think I was going for that to a certain degree. I, I I sat down to write this with like an idea of of the audience that I was writing it for. And that is an audience that would be someone like, um, I don't know, someone that really likes the TV show Narcos or something like that. Mm. Um, so I think there is a filmic quality to it that... I almost wonder now whether it would be better as a short film because then you could do some, you know, uh, Tarantino cutting back and forth. Yeah. Um, maybe a bit of sort of like a, uh, you know, a Hitchcockian turn where you know that like, the audience knows why he's not giving up to this torture, but the people in the story don't yet. And the whole thing's washed in sepia. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's, it, it's drenched in sepia, man. Uh, you just need to throw a chicken in the corner and then you've got like a Hollywood... <laughs> <laughs> Hollywood classic. It was a great little sort of mystery as well. There was, you know, so many questions prompted by like, oh, who's, who are these people with the cool accents? Where are they? Why is he hurting this other man? What what's happening here? What is the and it, and it just gradually unfolds and you realise what the setting is and so yeah, really really fascinating. Listen, oh, I'm glad I'm glad it I'm glad it's gone down well. It was uh, it was a, a lot of fun to write, but um, as I say, I think it it almost needs to be turned into something else maybe than than this. And obviously, I've gone for a love triangle here as the interpretation of the yeah. triangle. Um, so I'm absolutely fascinated to hear what you guys went for. I mean, yeah, no spoilers, but once again, we have some weird parallels. Oh, you know, you know, we're going to love discussing that, right, John? <laughs> do you have a story for us to the prompt the triangle? I certainly do. Very uh, good. Whenever you're ready. We're launching right now. Triangle. Front door closed, and the guilt set in immediately. I lay for a short while amongst the bedclothes which, like me, were suffused with the smell of her, shame and remorse quickly devouring any lingering feelings of post-coital bliss. The picture on my bedroom wall didn't help one iota. It was a large print of Pontormo's Supper at Emmaus, depicting Jesus blessing a loaf of bread beneath a floating eye of providence, the triangular emblem with a single staring eye commonly associated with the Illuminati. I resolved to finally ask Jeremy, my landlord, if I could take the vile thing down. He lived next door, a vicar, would you believe, and had decorated his adjoining rental with the same pious paraphernalia with which he'd festooned his own home. Apparently his deeply religious mother had lived here until her death ten years previously, hence the reason he was renting the place out. The cheap monthly rate he charged more than compensated for the biblical canvases and little ceramic Jesuses that adorned the flat, and he was a sweet and shy old man I didn't want to offend, but enough was enough. If I'd already had my doubts when moving in about whether Jeremy's religious icons would approve of my lifestyle, I was pretty certain now that they would not. The gaze of Christ and of the hovering eyeball above his head both seemed to bore into me, reproachful and accusing. Indeed, the three-sided symbol seemed wryly appropriate, a triangle to symbolise the mess I had made of my love life. I'd only ever dated other gay men for my entire adult life, until I met George, who is openly bisexual. I didn't think it would matter to me, and indeed it didn't, not until I was introduced to his best friend Lexi, who moved back to London about a year into our relationship. 
They were so flirty with each other that I couldn't help bringing it up later that evening when George and I were on our way to his apartment. I still remember the infuriatingly throwaway tone in which he'd explained that there used to be an item, as if that revelation didn't make it ten times worse. It took me another six months to become convinced they'd started sleeping with each other behind my back, and another three months to pluck up the courage to challenge him about it, blurting out my fears halfway through the swanky taster menu we were enjoying in a new Asian fusion restaurant in Hackney. He denied it flatly, storming out of the place to underscore his point, leaving me in an embarrassing silence while I finished a plate of sashimi slices arranged in the shape of a flower. It seemed symbols were all around me, I thought, as I glanced again at the staring eye that hung in the air above Pontormo's somewhat ginger-haired portrayal of Jesus. A triangle, indeed. I'd apologised to George the day after the incident at the restaurant, explaining that I was just insecure, that I'd never dated a bisexual man before, that I felt threatened by the pretty and confident Lexi and their innumerable in-jokes and shared memories. He'd been very understanding and told me it was okay and that I just needed to trust him. I didn't, of course. Even while I listened to his comforting words, I was resolving to bring it up directly with Lexi, whose phone number I'd obtained during that first meeting at her insistence that we would become best friends too. Her reaction was very different from George's. Oh yeah, just once though. Sorry. I suppose you were bound to find out sooner or later. She sucked on one of the long, thin cigarettes she seemed to be constantly smoking, a habit that necessitated all meetings with her occurring outside of pubs and coffee shops, in this instance in the dingy and freezing beer garden of the Falcon in Clapham near where she lived. She was one of those people who cultivated an aura of alluringly shabby chic, her wavy hair tumbling a little too effortlessly from beneath a beret, her outfit pieced together from charity shop cast-offs in a manner that looked as though she wanted people to think she'd spent less than a minute selecting them. Her dark eyeshadow and lipstick might have been thrown on at the last moment, or might have been the result of hours spent searching for Helena Bonham Carter makeup looks on TikTok. The realisation that she was very attractive came as almost as much of a shock as her casual confession. You can probably see where this is heading. It headed there that same night, when we ended up tangled in her bed, the first woman I'd slept with since I was a teenager. I can't deny that it was fantastic. A breathless encounter that left me exhausted and bewildered, and, in spite of myself, in spite of everything, wanting more. After that first rendezvous, I'd begged Lexi not to tell George what had happened. She'd shrugged. Seems a bit hypocritical to me, but whatever. She'd shrugged a second time when I asked whether she was going to sleep with George again. I might do. I don't really think about these things too much, Chris. When I'd suggested that this was clearly an insane situation, that George and I now had no choice but to split up, she genuinely seemed mystified by my logic. Why? Just do whatever you want to do. If you like each other, be a couple. If you both like sleeping with other people too, then do that. If you both like sleeping with me, well, I suppose it just shows how much you have in common. So here I was, trapped in a proper, soap opera-style, Jerry Springer love triangle, sleeping with two people, one of whom I really liked, and another I seemed improbably and impossibly attracted to. I stripped my bed angrily, feeling as though somehow the situation had been inflicted upon me, that this mess was in some way not my fault. I hoped that getting rid of the evidence might get rid of the gnawing guilt, and forced myself not to look at the painting again, not to meet that omniscient eye and all of its insinuations. George hated that canvas too, which was part of the reason we usually stayed at his place instead of mine. At least that meant there was less chance of him arriving unannounced and letting himself in with his spare key when Lexi and I were together. God, what a mess! My mother had been religious too. She would have hated how I lived my life. Perhaps that was part of why I was doing this. 
Perhaps a lot of what I did and thought and said was dictated by the ghost of that hateful old crone. By the time the cancer had claimed her, she'd looked like an unwrapped mummy, like something half-eaten, consumed by her own hatred of the modern world. So much of her life seemed to have revolved around the pursuit of a place in heaven, but I found it very hard to believe she'd be happy even there. That thought dragged my gaze back to the painting one last time, before I headed for a shower and to figure out how on earth I would look George in the eye when we met for our date night later that evening. The eye had followed me, of course, burning its judgement into me, even from the opposite corner of the room. Then it blinked. At first all I could do was replicate the gesture, blinking stupidly as my mind seemed to freeze. Then I lurched towards the painting, determined to disprove what my eyes had perceived, convinced that my recent relationship stresses had finally resolved themselves into a worrying hallucination. The eye, encaged in its tri-cornered prison, couldn't blink because it was just ink on canvas, a static collection of coloured pixels arranged by a printer into a facsimile of a famous painting. As I approached the image, I heard a scraping and clattering sound, seeming to emerge from the picture itself. Then, impossibly, the eye disappeared. Indeed, the entire triangle in which it was suspended was suddenly no longer there. Or, more accurately, it was. But instead of a painted shape, it was now the absence of one, a black triangular hole where an eye of providence ought to appear. I stared as more sounds manifested, coming, I realised, with a rising clot of horror in my throat, not from the painting, but from behind it. The eye reappeared then, stuffed hastily back into the hole like a piece from a child's toy. I jabbed it with my finger, pushing the carefully cut-out shape back through to the other side. Through the triangular hole I could see Jeremy, my landlord, standing there. He was completely naked, fumbling at the handle of a door on the opposite side of a tiny room. The space was illuminated solely by the light coming from my own room through the sliced-out triangle. Little more than a dark, sordid cupboard. He glanced over his shoulder in horror, and I saw the shape of a triangle painted around his right eye, the eye he must have used to watch me, to press up against the reverse of the painting and observe countless previous tenants. Love lives, one-night stands, secret trysts and relationships and breakups and fantasies, all played out on that bed, in that room, under his repulsive gaze. Jeremy, like Jesus, must have judged them all. Or perhaps the pervert didn't care about anything but the acts he silently observed. Jeremy finally hauled open the door and escaped back into his home. I stared dumbly for a few seconds, then called the police. Oh, what, I... what, a, what a gross old man. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I absolutely adored the tone of that. Yeah, it was oh, very real, wasn't it? It was extremely yeah. real. Like, the, there was something, the way that you observed the world in, in the prose there was just... Very crystalline in a way that felt um, not I, the word isn't humdrum, but do you know what I mean when I say humdrum? Like that kind of like it is it is everyday life. This guy yeah. is he's got a fairly normal ish problem. It's a bit extreme. It's a bit of an extreme problem. It's a fairly normal ish, you know, love problem, and everything is sort of coloured with that. It yeah, it was it was very good. Like I I liked the character. I felt like I, I feel like I know him now. Um, yeah, I really, I really enjoyed that. Thank you for telling no, me. No, not at all. I uh, yeah, I think I sort of it. It was and, and perhaps one of the challenges when writing it, it's the sort of balance, isn't it? So you, there's a, there's a chunk of the story that is, as you say, 
a normal life with a normal, as you say, a normal-ish problem, but nothing nothing fantastical or horrifying or particularly bizarre about a person who has a relationship challenge, and then switch to grotesque, creepy landlord who's been spying on countless tenants for years since his mum died. And it, I sort of wanted to spend maybe a bit more time in the second part, but um, but yeah, so I mean, the balance don't forget off. <laughs> Don't forget the Illuminati eye that the guy had painted on. That's that, that's, that made me laugh. That really got me. That, yeah, no, that got me as well. That was such the, a um, such a way. Yeah. The moment you you use the phrase "a rising clot of horror" in his throat, which mm. is a great phrase. But in that moment, because it had been so kind of realized and actual, my brain was like, "This could go in any direction," and I would, I did, I just accept it. If it was like, yeah, and then then it came out, and Jesus was like. We were, we were actually cool with gay people and you were on a fast track to heaven, but now you're out. Like, But it being the landlord with it painted on his face, just completely rug pulled. Like a rug pull of rug pulls because I was like, there, there are infinite options because you haven't set any rules other than so far, this is a world that you know. And that's, it, it left you a great opportunity to kind of just do what you want, which is, wicked oh thank you yeah I, I definitely like that sort of um i love a twist ending but i think yeah. i love a twist ending even more if you've managed to pull off either a misdirect or or as you say even just a it's completely out of nowhere and unexpected because you can get some twists that are a little bit too foreshadowed or a little bit obvious and yeah. predictable or, or an obvious subversion mm. of the obvious and so yeah hopefully that was a bit more uh, left field can we talk about briefly the plural of Jesus. We use Jesus Jesus's. I I wrote down Jesui, like J E S U I. That feels like Jedi. Like, Jedi. Like, like octopi and octopuses. Jesus, <laughs> uh, yeah, that would be Jezapode, I guess. <laughs> yeah, a, flo- a flock of Jezapode. <laughs> now what's what would be the collective noun for Jesus's? Savior, does that work? <laughs> oh right. Well, the, there is some. There were some really good um, word uses, like right in from the very start. Like your word choice was was really spot on. The um the this idea of being suffused with the sort of like smell and uh, like essence of somebody else after an act like that at the start, especially because we know it's sort of forbidden acts. Uh, as well it's that's immediately implied that was that was very strong like i i found myself thinking ah this guy really needs a shower like (laughs) and and because you then go on to describe the house as being like this quite like old and it's okay but it's you know it's decorated kind of strangely there's no way that's got a good shower in it there's no way or it would make funny Um, noises at the very least before you know funny funny noises yeah and the boss pressure would be shite as well i would have thought um Festooned. Now, I took the word festooned out of my story. No way! I was, Brilliant. Because I was like, that is actually too bombastic a word to put in my military hunter story. <laughs> um, so I was really glad to see it in yours. <laughs> so it's, thank you for that. Yeah, it sort of worked with the, you know, this, well, at that point, before we know the truth about him, you might picture this landlord as this sort of meticulous, fiddly little character who's kind of, you know, putting all these ornaments around the place and it just festooned mm. seemed to work for that uh, that character. There's, there is something gross about it, isn't there, when you're talking about decorations. And it, in this particular instance, we're talking about religious iconography as well. 
So it's it's like a gross application of it, which is a, a really good use of it. And then mm. the other thing that I wanted to talk about was just it, the whole thing is drenched in symbolism, which is which is great. But I I've not heard a story before where a um, an openly very very uh, solid in his sexuality gay man experiments with bi curiosity in a jealous fashion. And and I am. Um... Interesting sort of dilemma, I suppose, as, you, as you're writing something. So I want it. So again, as with your story, Ben, it was a love triangle interpretation, mm. although kind of a swerve then with the ha ha. No, it's a triangle with an eyeball in it. But that yes, um, and I and so I wanted an interesting love triangle, and that started me thinking about you know could you have aspects of different um, types of sexuality in there. I am a you know straight white cisgendered bloke you know i am i am boring demographically and so there is sometimes a dilemma i don't know if you guys experience this or, or or not or is you you don't want to do that thing of um offending anyone by trying to write as something that you can't fully identify with yeah but equally you do want to be representative interesting inclusive you want your writing to be realistic because in real life there are loads of different types of people and you want to include them yeah. all and then you can overthink it and just think yourself to death and think yourself out of doing something so in the end i sort of just thought no I, th I think this is i think this is the way i want to go let's go for it and and you know was was happy enough with the results yeah yeah i think i think that's that's the bit that really sort of excited me about the way that you set that up, because there was this kind of everyday aspect to to the main character, but then this that that love triangle felt more like a like a like a French art house movie or something. Do you know what yeah. I mean? It, it was quite it was quite um, an interesting uh, angle to look at that through. So I, I thought that was very cool. And then my final point, which I had, was that I'd already written down. Lexi equals Helena Bonham Carter's style before you said it in the story. Oh, that's good. That's because, good, I think. Because, because it was just, get, you know, from the immediate uh, way that you'd introduced her, I was, already, I was already getting a very strong Helena Bonham Carter in Fight Club vibe from her. Um, and, then, and then you mentioned it, and I was like, oh, yes. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I felt very much in some, sort of um, in tune with the story that you were telling. So, again, thanks. Oh, not at all. Thank you so much. And, yeah, the little d d sort of... Um... Long thin cigarettes definitely adds to that uh, overall dynamic as well. True, I think true. Very briefly on how you told it as well, spoken in a in a very relaxed way that gave it that um, flow of consciousness, style boss still having plenty of character, which is I think super important, especially for this format, because mm. you could you can just read out thoughts, but we we got to know the guy quicker because of you know your mannerisms bleeding through and especially to your credit like you say it's sometimes it can be very difficult to write queer characters or yeah. uh, characters of color when you are cisgendered and white and male and and you know not leaning into stereotypes and making sure that you do give fair and equal representation it's you know it, it is important and you did a great job of it as far as i'm concerned Oh, thank you, thank you. And yeah, the, the the sort of reading your own work out loud is. I know some writers almost do that as part of the editing process, don't they? They will read things out yes. loud, and you 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 do definitely catch some problems and errors that you might miss on yeah. the on the page. But um, it isn't something I normally do, um, and was quite fun. So so thank you so much. Brilliant. Well, we're not done yet. There's one story left yet to be told. 
Nico, have you got a story for us or have you failed to turn your homework this time? Imagine if I just said no. <laughs> right. I'll better read it to you. This is the last episode of the time. <laughs> and you'll never see me again. <laughs> the Triangle. Dissidents are sent to the Triangle. That's what the overseers call it. And they're not very creative. We figured a few things out. The first is that it's probably triangular. Building A, which is what our home is called, has angles, but only enough to make a rectangle. The ones who are taken when they cry or rage against the overseers, they leave through the door under the big clock. So we can be certain that even with the angles aside, it's outside of block A. We know because of the rotor boards, these strange wooden flaps with the name scrawled on them, that there are blocks B and C also, and at least 30 floors, for that is the one that we are on. One girl, whose name we can't remember anymore, played with the wooden slats. The clack clacking of them cut through the relative quiet of what we call evening. In truth, we do not know what time it is. Some of the old ones, with their crinkled fingers and eyes the colour of thin porridge, told us about the sun, how it would soar across the ceiling of the planet, and they'd know it was day and night by if their friend the sun was there. We do not know what time it is because the clock has stopped. They teach all of us how to read it, the elders. They say we might need it, should the thing restart. The big hand is minutes, and the little one is hours. I don't really understand what minutes and hours are, except that many of one makes the other. The overseers do not need the clock to run. They have their own inside of them. They tell us it's time to wake and time to work, and they tell us when we may stop. The only other thing we know is that anyone who goes to the triangle does not come back. They are dissidents. They are removed in order to ensure the safety of the other members of our community. Community is very important. So the overseers tell us. One of the elders, who is called Grandmother, links many of us together. She says that I will be like her someday, that my breasts will swell, and I will become mother and then grandmother. I do not want my breasts to swell like grandmother's. They dangle so low from her crooked form that I fear she will step on them. That makes me laugh sometimes. She tells me, hush, and to keep turning the great wheels. I'm small enough to get inside them and run which makes grandmother's job much easier. She tells me I'm a good girl and shares stories with me of outside, of when the first overseers were born. She says they were their own grandmothers, which I don't understand. She says they took all of the knowledge of our people and turned it to giving themselves purpose and form. They are wise then, I mused, and asked if this was why they were chosen to be in charge of us. 
it was our lack of wisdom, not their greed for it, that made that decision, grandmother said. It was only their need for power of another sort that kept our kind alive. I fear I never came to understand what that really meant. Perhaps if I'd been able to get a closer look at the overseers, I would have understood more. Grandmother always told me to get lower down in the wheel when they came. I did not want her to get into trouble or be taken to the triangle, so I did as I was told. I hear them when they come. Their footsteps are not like mine or grandmother's, but then I reckon that all people are different in their own ways. Caleb, who's another man who turns the wheels, has skin so much paler than mine. He's almost light enough to match the walls and floor. I tell him so sometimes, and he says words to me that grandmother says I must not repeat. He called me a mutant once. It's a funny word to say. Mutant. Mutant. <laughs> grandmother said I mustn't say such a bad word. When I asked what it meant, she said it was unkindness for unkindness sake. She says that Caleb is filled up with sadness. He had children, but they did not get to grow up like I did. There are 147 of us in the room. Grandmother says at the start there were only eight. That seems to be not enough to me. But they made more people, and those people made people. And grandmother reckoned there would be more than 500 if they did not take people to the triangle, and if all the babies had grown up like me. This morning, when the overseers came, grandmother was still sleeping. I'd already tied my hair in place and gotten in the wheel, ready to spend the day whispering stories to each other as we turned it. She didn't wake up, even when the overseers turned her body. They were so rough with her that I called out, Leave her be! Stop being so rough with grandmother! And the overseer came and touched me. Its hands were so cold. It only had three fingers on its hand, and it dug so tightly into the small amount of meat on my arm. Its eye, just one was glowing like one of the light orbs on the ceiling. It swept over me in the colour of blood. As it did, more of them came. Grandmother had been kind to make me hide from them, I realised. Their bodies were cruel, all angles. Their one eye sat on top of a neck, unadorned with a head. They had no legs, only strange rolling things, like the wheels, but wrapped in a cord. Grandmother did not resist when she was lifted, still sleeping from her bed. She didn't even open her eyes to see me. I twisted, and the overseer closed his hands so tight I heard a snapping sound, and all the fighting was taken out of me. I began to weep then. A strange sensation ran all over me. It was like hunger, but from my bones. It, it racked me and made me feel dizzy. And in some moments it was almost joyous. 
and then the sick sensation came to my stomach again. The overseer told its friend I was to be taken to the triangle. I promised them I was good, that I would turn the wheel as soon as grandmother woke up. The second overseer said my deformities were a product of incest and that it was fascinating. I don't know what that means. The triangle was, in fact, just a triangle. It, it went down where the three buildings met, making a space in between them. I dared to look up and see for a moment the ceiling of the world. It was a colour I've never seen before, and the most beautiful thing I could ever imagine. More beautiful, even. It looked like dreams and warm food, the promise of the ever after, which grandmother told me about. And they let me go. And grandmother and I began to fall into the triangle. I looked down and, and thought how I had never seen so many people before. Some of them looked very different to me. Some were dark of skin, like me, some very pale, and some of them, I was sure, didn't have any skin at all. Chilling last sentence. Ace. Good lord. Brilliant stuff. That would, uh, yeah, that would leave that would leave a big imprint on me. How that ended. Um, Manky, like, isn't it? <laughs> if, I was, you know, if I was if I was reading through a, a short story anthology and I was reading the story, and I was like, "This is this is really cracking on, isn't it?" And then <laughs> and then it and it gets to the end, and then it's like these like skinless incest freaks at the bottom of a pit. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. So I've 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 massively been a bit. Uh, I've sort of reduced your story there to to, to sort of like end there. But it was actually really good. Like everything. everything, um, everything <laughs> Just incest freaks in a pit. <laughs> but like the the first bit that really struck a chord with me uh, in terms of the way that you were describing the world was eyes the color of thin porridge. Yeah. Yeah. You have you have a knack for this kind of description, which is so uh such a positive trait for short story writing because that's a gross b fascinating <laughs> and c original and d conveys the idea that they they live off crappy porridge it's just doing yeah. so much work right that's that yeah because it's obviously she's equating it to the things that she knows doesn't yeah she? yeah um Yes, what an interesting situation. Absolutely savage burn on the grandmother's knockers, by the way. <laughs> Body bagged her. Listen, she's she's raised hundreds of horrible, deformed infants. <laughs> Dissidents are sent to the triangle. Yeah. It, what a story. And then just that whole bit around, uh, this is one of the... There's a topic with which I'm fascinated is, you know, the whole AI and robot sort of, uh, let's use the term uprising, because that's not scary or depressing. And it, because we, <laughs> we are sort of grappling, I know we've been, we've had story, you know, Terminator and all that stuff for, for decades, but it's it's becoming more and more real with every passing day, isn't it? You know, as we've got yeah. chat GPT and all that kind of stuff. So it's, yeah, it definitely resonates. So, yeah, the, the weird link 
Ben, and it's it's kind of twisted around what we told, but it was both people under a new agenda being thrown out of buildings. Yeah, which yeah. is oh, yeah. quite a strange thing, isn't it? Uh, so odd. That one's that one's not. So we've had them before, John, where. We've we've crossed the streams a bit and we've been like, oh, is this the closest we've ever come to writing the same? I think story? you did the arena, didn't you? I heard that episode where you had arena. Yeah, story. that was really, that was very coincidental. That was weird. Yeah, that, that I think that, that's definitely the most recent example of one that's been really, really close. This one's kind of close in a, in an odd way. Like that. Why is that the only bit that <laughs> that links them? Yeah. Okay, there's, oh there's wow! No, about, I had a really good time. Yeah, sorry to interrupt. I was just going to say this. There's no, something about. I, I apologies if this is too far down the nerd rabbit hole, but I play a load of um, you know like Dark Souls and those kind of video games where they do a lot yeah, of like, yeah, yeah. sort of uh, environmental storytelling. So that whole thing about here's a society that's gone a bit wrong. Oh, here's a hole in the grit. Oh, here's a pit full of corpse. Oh, okay, I can see what's happened here, and no one needs to tell me what's happened here. I can infer yeah. it from these things I can see. Like I love that that way of conveying a, a backstory in a in a simple sort of powerful way. One of the overseers is just patches in a cardboard box. <laughs> we all know it to be true. <laughs> the description of this, the overseers' bodies, their bodies were cruel. Now, that is wonderful. That's a wonderful line because it, embo- it basically means their embodiment of intrinsic evil, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, and the idea that someone's at, at such a fundamental level, someone can be cruel. But you, you might see the occasional time when someone describes someone as having like a cruel smile or a mm. cruel glint in their eye. But this is everything about their bodies. It's cruel. Just wrong. Yeah. yeah. From, her, from her perspective, it must be such a, yeah. I really felt the fear of this little girl in that moment. And the, the yeah, I think that, that was excellent. The voice, you know, telling it from the perspective of the little girl and it made all those images even more powerful. You know, like when she said, oh, they have clocks inside of them. And it's like, oh, that's really sinister, actually. But you know, <laughs> yeah. I think I get a bit inured to uh, to Nico's voice talents because I'm I'm recording with him so often. We're always, and he he's always got a voice ready. And this is this is actually quite an odd one that you've gone for, isn't it? Like this sort of like slightly deformed incest little girl voice It's got to be got to be top shelf Nico, that hasn't it? So the uh, I didn't know whether to put it in, but in my head, she's about thirteen. Uh, but mm. completely infantilized. Yeah, and, I, no, I, uh, I think you gave that impression. Yeah, just oh, yeah. Oh, horrid. I made myself feel gross there. Yep. Yeah. Good work. Well, three <laughs> stories, three stories forming the points of a triangle. There, boys. Very good. I, I I've enjoyed all of those. So thank you to both of you. Uh, excellent seeing the telling from both of you, chaps. Oh, likewise, likewise. Very kind. Very kind. So, just before we uh, be- wrap up this uh, story episode, it's important to note that you can uh, head over to John Richter's website if you want to grab some of his books. Is that the best place for the people to grab stuff? Yeah, no, uh, indeed. That, that is one of one of several. So, if you look up John Richter online, you'll you'll find my books available on Amazon. It's John, just about J O N. Richter is like the Total Recall character, R I C H T E R. And yes, I have a website which is www.john-richter.com. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Richter Writes. I'm on Instagram at John Richter Writes. I've got a Facebook page. Um, and you can also track down my couple of podcasts that you kindly mentioned earlier. So there's Dark Natter, where I and a pal 
uh, Liam, my co-host, talk about our favourite dark fiction. And more recently, there's Hosts in the Shell, as I mentioned earlier, with Matt Adcock, where we talk about our favourite cyberpunk fiction. Um, so yeah, loads of stuff, few different avenues, um, but no TikTok. I draw the line at TikTok. Draw the line there. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Well, thanks again, and uh, we'll see you for the interview next week. Goodbye. Thanks for joining us for this episode of The Tiny Bookcase. Remember to subscribe, otherwise you're going to miss out on the future fun. Also, tell a friend. If you like this episode, link them to it. We'd be tremendously grateful. You can follow us on Twitter at Bookcase Tiny. Facebook, at The Tiny Bookcase, and Instagram, at Bookcase Tiny, for updates. Speaking of supporting the podcast, well, magic can only take one so far. The Tiny Bookcase is supported by the generosity of its patrons. Those kind souls have really kept my belly full the last year. Let's cast a spell for them, shall we? For a Magnificent Beardery, let's cast the Chinicus Folliculale spell on Gary Laird. For Rich Ginger Tones on the scalp, let us cast the Orangi Hedondo spell for Scott Byrne. And for General Fabulousness, why not the Ulala la Mother spell on Matthew McLaren? How do you come up with that shit, man?